We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, Last class we wrapped up chapter 11, um, where Paul acts as a fool. He goes on and boasts, but not in a way that they were anticipating, and starts bragging about all of the things that he's had to suffer for his work in the Lord. And he's going to continue his, his boasting, his bragging, but again in a way that's not uh, what these, these other individuals are doing. And that's primarily what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. Um, we will read through the whole chapter, but tonight we're primarily going to focus on verses 1 through 10. But before we jump into that, were there any thoughts or questions or comments about uh, chapter 11? Before we just kind of truck on through We've got two microphones back there, so they are they are ready for you. And I think it's worthwhile to note. Part of me feels like it's the entire jump of thought that he talks about his persecutions and the things that he endured as an apostle in chapter eleven, and then in chapter twelve, feels like it's totally um, unrelated that we have this thorn in the flesh in this. But we can see um, perhaps a connection of two instances. Um, we, we talk about how uh, King Aratus was against him in Damascus and wanting to uh, imprison him, and he's let out through a window um, out of the city. And then here we see, once again, multiple examples of how. Christ transformed uh, this man who, from a worldly standpoint, had it all. He, he, he was uh, top of his class. He was uh, well-spoken of, uh, uh, very knowledgeable in the law, and yet he is abased. He yeah. is made low. And so... Just, just seeing what we are called to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for bringing up those last two verses in chapter 11. Uh, it is interesting. He, he, he speaks in all these generalities. Dangers in the country and dangers of rivers and dangers of, at sea. And, and then he gives a very specific, just one little specific story about what happened to him in Damascus. Um, and it seems, I, I don't know, to me it seemed a little out of place. Like, you've already kind of made this point, but I just, I really want to let you know about this particular instance. Um, someone actually connected the end of 11 into 12 by saying, he, re, he recounts a story of how God brought him down low, literally brought him down out of the city, and then he then transitions into, so let me tell you a story about when I was brought up. And then brought down again, right? Uh, think of his entrance, what was supposed to be his entrance into Damascus. What was, what was he originally there to do in Damascus? Was he sneaking in like a thief? Was he? he had letters of authority to be there on behalf of the Jewish leaders to drive those pesky Christians out of there. But then he has to sneak out of the city so as not to be harmed. Um, God, again, uh, really 
turns things uh, upside down. Let's go ahead and read chapter 12. Um, do I have a volunteer to read that whole chapter? And then we'll, we'll specifically focus on 1 through 10. All right, we got Josh and Alan. You guys can fight over it. All right. I'm going to show on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. <clears throat> and I... Oh. <laughs> oh, the, the Bible shut down? Oh, no. You got it? Yeah. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be seeking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than that he sees me or fears for me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations,
Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> what jumps out to you in this in this chapter? that a lot more certainly, but you're absolutely right. When we are reminded of our insufficiencies and our dependency on Him, we are better for it if, if we'll allow ourselves uh, to learn from it. Absolutely. What else? Why did God give all these visions? Well, here, I mean, it's, there's nothing else that I can Yeah, there are some similar accounts. A couple of uh, a couple of people. Well, yeah, so you've got John in Revelation who saw all kinds of things, and we get great detail. Uh, Stephen was allowed to look into the throne room of God uh, before he was killed. Even Paul, throughout his his uh, work in Acts, we are told that he, at various occasions, saw visions of the Lord. The Lord spoke directly to him. You're right. We don't read of anything quite like this um, outside of John. And, uh, and yet, there's, there's so much we don't know about it. <laughs> he doesn't go into... It's almost humorous how little he actually shares with us. But why does he share it with us is, is what we'll try to focus on tonight. Yeah, Gary. Back in the Acts when uh, Paul was uh, meeting with uh, Ananias in Acts 22, 14, Ananias said to him, then he said, God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will, that's Jesus, and see the just one. And hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men that you have seen and heard. So we think about it, all the other apostles, they got to spend time with Jesus on the earth. That was one of the prerequisites for them to be an apostle, that they were with him, that they could be eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any of that. So I believe this account here in chapter 12 is Paul speaking of himself in the third person. Where Jesus is bringing them up to heaven and gave them a quick uh, catch-up course. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at that. Yeah, there, there were many things that, that Paul did not get to experience uh, firsthand, like the other apostles did. Um, he was allowed to see the resurrected Lord, which was uh, essential to, to, the, to the apostles' work um, but yeah, it's, it, it is almost like a crash course, right? Let, let me catch you up to speed a little bit. Um, 
Yes, he absolutely could say he was an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. And that was key. That was key to the gospel. Jesus is alive. That is the good news of the gospel. And so, yeah, Paul, Paul is able to do that. Whether Paul here in this section is referring to that event on the Damascus Road, I, I'm not sure of that. He gives a time frame 14 years ago. It, it's hard for us to pinpoint that. Um, it doesn't sound like they are the exact same event. Perhaps this is something that happened in the interim. Uh, he does tell us later that he spent some time in Arabia before going to Jerusalem and meeting with the apostles. Perhaps it happened during that time. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there are numerous times throughout Paul's journeys where he encounters the Lord through various means. And um, you just don't hear him talk about it very often. In fact, it almost seems as if this account, this may be the first time he's mentioned it to anyone. Um, and, and the fact that he does this kind of speaking in the third person as if to de detract from himself um, seems, to, seems to indicate this is not something he, he frequently brought up. Um, what else? Before we start kind of jumping through verse, uh, yeah, we've got Micah and then Emily. It seems out to me that he didn't start the letter this way. Uh, like if, if I had uh, people making accusations against me about my about my character, about my conduct, I would be very well tempted to start off with, you don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and and think, like, this is what... Um, and yet, he waits 14 years, supposedly, to disclose this. And, and I think that's, that's powerful to see. Um, I don't need to know everybody's backstory um, in, in order to trust them, in order to, uh, in order to uh, work with, with others. And, and you can see his humility in that he, he's so reluctant mm -hmm. in, in doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th there were elements of, of Paul's uh, backstory, of his qualifications, as we might say, that we know very little about. Do you guys remember, in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually reveals that he is, he is uh, equipped with speaking in tongues. you guys remember that? And he actually says, I'm, I'm glad that I'm actually better at this than the rest of you. <laughs> because they were putting speaking in tongues as the best of spiritual gifts. It's the only time Paul mentions it. And that's so like Paul, right? He doesn't start, you know, what do we normally put at the top of our resumes? The most impressive things, right? Because, you know, by the time they get down to the bottom... We don't, you know, hopefully we've already got the job. Paul doesn't start this letter or any of his really spending that much time on himself. He very quickly gets into how much he appreciates them or how much he's thinking of them and how much the Lord has done. Um, yes, uh, Emily. Yeah, along with that, um, I really appreciate verse 3 and how he admits that he doesn't know something. And just how, like, there are some questions that we have about spiritual realm or something that we just don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't go too far down this particular rabbit hole because at the end of the day, the, you know, what happened to Paul? What did he see? What did he hear? The answer is, we don't know. The only one who knew was not allowed to say. And so, uh, you know, we could spin our wheels and come up with all kinds of ideas, and people have, about what it is that he saw and what it is that he heard, but that's not the point here, is it? It's not what he experienced, it's why he experienced these things and then what God was, was doing for him and doing for the Corinthians because of these things. Yeah, Alan. It was interesting to me that this vision uh, kind of Yeah. And just that puts him in the category of people. We don't know what it was about, but it puts it, him in the category of persons like the prophets. Yeah. And, and I don't want to give the indication that John in Revelation was somehow wrong to give us all those details. No, there was a purpose for that particular revelation, and, and God uh, and Jesus throughout that regularly told him, write these things down, right? John was supposed to share that message. Paul here was not. He was not permitted to speak the things that were said to him. And why that was, we'll have to ask Jesus when we see him. Um, But Paul was not going to use this as an opportunity uh, to justify his authority as it seems these false apostles were using. Um, their supposed visions and abilities um, to justify theirs. So we've already, we, we've answered part of this question. Uh, there, were, there were many other instances where Paul saw visions of the Lord, um, even the Lord himself. We read those in places like Acts chapter 9, uh, chapter 16 and verse 9, 18 and verse 9, 23 and 11. What was different about this account One of those is that Paul is giving the account himself. So obviously Acts was written by Luke. He's telling what happened to Paul. But Paul here is revealing something about himself, which we know he was often hesitant to do. He didn't write an autobiography for us. And so that that is a little different here. And he provides very little details. He actually spends more time and more detail describing his weaknesses and hardships in the previous chapter than he does in this amazing glorifying vision, which I think is is notable. So Paul says, I must go on boasting. Uh, Not that he's being forced to do it. You know, he is making this choice to do it. I think it's still along the same lines of he believes that there is still some benefit in answering a fool according to their folly. Let me show you how foolish this line of reasoning is by providing myself as an example He says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. It's written as if if he's answering someone else's um, response. So, okay, they talked about 
things to brag on. They talked about their qualifications. I answered that in chapter 11. Okay, now let's go on talking about visions and revelations like they have. Let me share with you one of mine. And he says, I know a man in Christ. He's simply indicating there's this Christian person who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Did any of us look in our concordances? (laughs) What does that mean, third heaven? There are different levels of heaven and we get promoted depending on how good we are in this life. Everyone do this. That's not what that is. Josh. So you've got, uh, some people say, the atmosphere of our planet. You've got space and all that contains, which is impressive and mind-boggling. And beyond that, however we want to wrap our brains around that, is where God dwells. And and this is where he was allowed to to go in and see. He doesn't know, as, as was pointed out, he doesn't quite know if his body was literally taken there or if he was just taken uh, uh, his mind or his spirit uh, was, was transported there. He, he doesn't know, but God does. And he was caught up into paradise. And whether that was in the body or out, he, he doesn't know, but God does. And he heard things. And even though Paul does not give us details, it's still kind of fun to consider what, what do you think we're going to hear when we finally encounter God. Can you imagine? I know that when, when Jesus comes to John on the island of Patmos, his voice, when he speaks to John in, in that physical form, is described as the sound of many rushing waters. That the words coming out of his mouth are like a sword. I, I, I can't fathom, but it's still kind of fun to do it. To noodle on that a little bit. When God speaks to us, what what is it going to be like? And whatever it was that was said, it says, which man may not utter. Most translations understand this to mean it's not that he was incapable of doing it, it was that he was not allowed to do it. And this happens, I can't think of the passage offhand, but in, in Revelation... Numerous times, Jesus says, or the Spirit says, the angel says, write these things down. But there is an instance where something occurs, and John is told, don't write that down. There are some things that are for for God alone, and, and those that he's speaking with, and that's impressive. And yet, Paul wasn't willing to use that as a, as a bargaining chip here either. So why are we given so few details? What is Paul trying to do? Micah? Um, 
it's not really about him. None of this letter has really been about him. He even talks about that in chapter, in chapter 12, saying, you think that I'm trying to defend myself. No. Um, he's talking about the lesson that he learns uh, through all of this. Um, and we'll talk about it. We've already alluded to the themes of grace, the themes of sufficiency. That are throughout this book, um, but as we stated at the beginning of chapters ten through thirteen, and really throughout the book, he's he's wanting to win them back. Yes. And he's using this thorn in the flesh that plagues him and, and really torments him um, as an opportunity to. Contrast that kind of sacrifice and love in contrast to what these super apostles uh, are really uh, promoting. Yeah, absolutely. He recognizes the danger there in verse 6. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So whether there was any question about, is this person, this man in, in Christ, is this actually Paul? Well, he very clearly reveals it here in verse 7. He's talking about himself. To keep him from becoming proud or conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to him in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. And before we get into the specifics of, of what potentially that may have been, again, we're given almost no details. I think we're given a hint. But I want us to consider, before we get too much farther, connecting chapter 11 and chapter 12, whatever it was that he saw and heard up there, he was willing to go through all of the things he described in chapter 11. So a shipwreck, no big deal. Three of them. Stonings, beatings, persecution, all of that. In light of what he knows exists up there and where he, he has been promised he can go, shipwreck is no big deal. We... We haven't been blessed with a vision like that. We've been told, and we can believe, we can have the same kind of confidence. But do we encounter hardships and go, okay, I know where I'm going. I know what he's promised. Back in chapter 4, let's go ahead and turn there. Back in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. And in verse 16... Paul had told them this. For we, uh, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
He doesn't even say when you stack them up, they don't... He says you can't even compare them. There's, There's no comparison that can be made. And these light, momentary afflictions, Paul was stoned to death and was willing to say, it was light, it was momentary. It didn't last forever. Because when I look at that and I compare it to what God has promised me, um, you can't. You can't compare it. And so that's what's driving Paul to go through all that he listed in chapter 11. Whatever it was that he saw up there, whatever it was that he has, um, has, has believed now, is driving him to do that. But so that he doesn't boast in it, which is a human tendency, pride is a temptation for every human, Satan figures out a way that that we feel compelled to brag about something. So to keep that from happening, even to Paul, what is given to him? What do we know about Paul's thorn in the flesh? Why was it given to him? And how did the Lord respond when Paul asked for it to be removed? Give me some thoughts. Let's talk about it. Grace, grace is the answer here, right? Paul wants something badly, and Jesus responds and says, my grace is enough. You, you don't need what you're asking for. And that, that's going to be important. We'll talk more about that. Sort of what he was speaking to may be similar, but I, I saw a movie once um, that the others had to watch, and it was a, a movie about Paul, and his um, throwing the flesh the movie presented was him having killed all those people and all that suffering he had done and all the hurt he had caused. Every now and then, he would see Hmm. visions of those people coming towards him. In that movie, it was very a, a stark statement to me that he would have to live with that thorn. Oh, but let me not remember anymore. Take that away from People said it's things like his eyesight and all these other things and all, but what if it was he just the pain of what he had done and the sorrow he had caused and God said, my my grace is sufficient. This is what I want you to go through to keep keep you humble. Hmm. I I hadn't thought of that, but I, I, I can imagine Satan using something like that to get at at Paul. Remember what you used to do? Remember who you used to be? Has God ever done that with, or Satan ever done that with you? You're not worth anything. You remember what you did? Yeah, that's, that's a possibility for sure. Jesse? I like this and I don't like this. <laughs> because um, 
as a steward, I am compelled and we are told to go to him for all the all that we need. Um, and I think what I don't like about this is sometimes he knows we need a little humility. Mm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you kind of stole my last point. Thanks for that. But yeah, we don't know, and therefore it's easier for us to apply, right? Maybe there is something physically in our lives that plague us and is hard, and we've asked God to take it away, and maybe his response is the same as what he gave Paul. Maybe it's something mentally. Maybe it's past sins. Paul's going to mention some specific things that I, I, I think he's leaning towards. I'm more inclined to, to, to go in, in this direction. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is, we can find the same application because of, of the, the generic terms that he's using. Yeah, right. Uh, when, I, when we're reading through this, uh, I'm, I, kind of, I kind of reminisce about uh, Acts chapter 10 uh, when Peter goes down and, work, and he starts to worship. Uh, uh, Peter at his feet, he tells him to stand up for I'm also a man. And I think about Paul speaking, and he says it twice in, in this passage, lest I be exalted above measure. And it's not, I, I feel like, yes, this is for Paul. I, I truly do believe that this thorn in the flesh is for Paul, but, but also for other people to recognize that Paul isn't just this mighty being, that this great above everybody else. He's just like us. Yeah. He's been used by God as a tool, yes, but he is just like us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he used the term earlier in this letter, jars of clay. Fragile non-impressive vessels. That's, that's what we are. That's how he saw himself. That's how he, he sees servants of, of God. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, God is going to accomplish His will. He's going to accomplish His purpose. The fact that He involves us is really quite remarkable. He doesn't need us, but He wants us to be involved. He wants us to, to participate in that. Um, and His power is most impressive when He uses unimpressive people like us. Yeah, Josh. Yes.
yeah, but no, that that's a great that's a great thought that you got it. Okay, I was gonna try to make something up. Absolutely. So uh, some suggest, um, and I'll just kind of rattle these off. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, the one I probably heard most growing up was potentially this is a description of Paul's poor eyesight. Uh, we get that from Galatians 4, 13 through 15. He, Paul talks about some kind of ailment that he had among those Christians and that they would have, if they were able, they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. And so something was happening there. Uh, whether we can connect that in Galatians to this, uh, I, I struggle to do that. Perhaps, um, perhaps some have said that the thorn was what he just finished talking about. He wanted to communicate what was said to him in this third heaven, but wasn't allowed. And that was the restrictive thorn that, that Christ gave to him. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it was a physical thing. But again, we talked about this last time. We're, we're, we're trying to figure out, we're trying to define what this term means, thorn in the flesh. And what's the best way to define a biblical term? We start looking in the context. Is it used elsewhere in the context? Is this term used elsewhere in the Bible? Have we heard this before? Can anyone think of... It's an Old Testament reference. Alan thinks he's got it. Yes. Yes. So in Numbers 33 and 55, God commands the children of Israel to go into Canaan, drive those people out, all of them. And if they leave any, God says they are going to become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They're going to become a thorn in your flesh. These people, these people are going to be causing problems for you and it's going to last for generations. And it did. It plagued them for as long as they were in the land. Perhaps Paul is referring, like he says in verse 10, back here in 2 Corinthians 12, for the sake of Christ then, so he's making a conclusion, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
Most of what he's describing there are what people are doing to him because of his faith, because of his work. So perhaps, perhaps this thorn in the flesh are those people who are constantly after Paul making his job and his work hard. And is it possible, whether that's specifically what he's work, uh, asking for here, but it, can, can we imagine that sometime during Paul's ministry he asked God to, that those people would leave him alone so that he could get his work done? Again, the generic nature of this, it could be any one of the things that we've mentioned. The application is the same. Paul asked God. He begged three times. I hearken back to when Jesus did that in the garden. And the answer to Paul here is the same answer, essentially, that God gave Jesus in the garden. The answer was no. And it wasn't because God didn't love either of these individuals. It's because he loved Jesus and all the rest of us that God had Jesus go to the cross. He didn't take that away from him. And it's because God loved Paul. He says in verse 9, his answer was, My grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. If I take this thing away from you, you might have a tendency to think, you might have a tendency to become conceited and think that it was of your own doing that these things are happening. <coughs> and God says, no, my, my power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. You, you need to stay weak in this area. Yeah, Josh. Yes. And that word grace, when we talk about grace, what do we normally and rightfully think about? God has given us his grace, and we think about? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor? We, we think about salvation, right? He's given us forgiveness of sins, right? 
And that's how it's used most often. But it's also used in a variety of other ways in the New Testament. But it's exactly that. It's unmerited favor. It's, it's someone giving someone something that they did not earn or deserve. So think of this. Paul has this hard, hard thing happening to him. And God is saying, it is a grace for me to let you keep that. Because if he takes it away, what is Paul afraid will happen to his own heart? He'll become conceited. So this thing was hard. It was super difficult. But compared to what he might develop if it were taken away, the sin of pride, Jesus, God here, is, is willing to say, look, it's a grace that I'm giving you to let you keep that thing, whatever it was. And do we think of our own difficulties and our own trials in that way? Uh, for some of us, it's chronic illness. For, for others, it's, it's emotional or, or mental. Maybe it's family issues. Maybe it's fill in the blank. And, and we've asked God time and time again for the thing to be removed or changed or altered. And God says, it's actually better for you that I let you keep that. And, and that's, 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 that's hard to accept. Oftentimes it's hard to understand. But we're dealing with a God whose thoughts are above our own and whose ways are higher than ours. Uh, and we've just got to trust him. We've got to trust him. That if he says, I know that if that thing were taken away, there's something potentially far worse. Trust me. You need this, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. What greater grace is that to be reminded about how weak I am and how much I need Jesus. And I just need to be able to tell myself that when God pulls the rug out from under me, it's for my own good because I was, um, you know, I, I was not feeling connected to him. I was not at his feet. I was, um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I find this passage really encouraging. It is not wrong to ask God to ease pain. Things are difficult in our lives. It is not wrong for us to ask. Even Jesus did it on the night of his crucifixion. It's okay. God wants us to reach out to him. And sometimes he shows us mercy. And his grace takes different forms. God hears us. So ask. He wants to hear from us. And so I hope this motivates us. Are we asking? Sometimes I've just muscled through things and complained about it. And I spend a lot of time talking about it with other people, how hard it is. And I've forgotten that I haven't, I haven't actually talked to God about it. Talk to him about it. He wants to hear from you. It's okay to ask. 
And then wait and be patient and trust Him, whatever the answer is. And try to look for the ways that God is showing us grace in whatever answer that is. That's, oh, that's it. All right. (laughs) Uh, We will attempt to finish the rest of chapter 12 in uh, uh, Sunday morning. Thank you all.